Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today it is my great pleasure to welcome to the programme David Kong of truthsleuth.net. David Kahn is a specialist in cult mentalities and the author of a number of books such as Lednorf's Dilemma, The Specific Density of Scientists, and most recently The Pleasure of Fiends, an orthodox study of evil and the meaning in the Jonestown cultic horror, which was published in 2013, which will be central to our conversation today. Before his retirement, David Kahn was a U.S. Defense Department liaison among West Coast Navy, Air Force bases, the Defense Department, and several industrial transportation companies, and prior to that, a lead analyst with Chevron's Environmental Laboratory. For a total of eight years, leading up to the immensely tragic events of the 18th of November 1978, in which over 900 people were killed in a mass suicide stroke murder in Jonestown, Guyana, David Kahn investigated Jim Jones, the manipulative leader of the so-called People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. And it is to discuss that investigation and that experience and to help us at least gain some kind of understanding of this destructive cult and its founder that uh, David Kahn joins us. Thank you very much, David Kahn, uh, for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be aboard. Well, I'm really glad that we're able to have this conversation because we were going to have this chat quite some time ago, actually, wasn't it? Months and months ago. And then you were struck down with an injury that meant the interview had to be postponed for several months. So it's great to be chatting with you at long last. How are you feeling these days? Are you pretty much recovered? Oh, I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Just doing fine. Wonderful. Great, great, great to hear it. Well, if we turn to this subject here of the Jonestown Massacre and Jim Jones, first let me say thank you for sending me your book, The Pleasure of Fiends, in which you recount your experience of pursuing Jones during those eight years or so. It's a, it's certainly a disturbing read, but I think it is an important document to come to terms with because you don't just deal with your own experience, which is certainly interesting in its own right, but you, you face the issue of evil, specifically irrational, cultic evil. You, you face it head on, which I think is a necessary thing to do with the subject like this, but, but you do so with reference to Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. So I'm wondering, if, before we even start on this in a, in a serious way, could you tell us why you chose to write about the subject with reference to Dracula? Yes, it's truly amazing. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to go see the movie Dracula with Bela Lugosi, and my father decided not to let me go, and I was so persistent that uh, he finally yielded, and I did go, but I had, for two or three weeks, I had nightmares, but what that caused me to do is to go at the age of 11 and get that book out of the library and read it. And I found it fascinating. In fact, a year and a half or maybe two years later, I was still reading it. And I did an oral book report in the eighth grade. It's just almost hard to believe what happened. Because just before I was supposed to go before the class, I, I picked a little scab above my chin. And it started bleeding. And there I was standing in front of the class and licking that spot that was running through. It was, it's unbelievable. And I, and I realized the irony later, there I was talking about the blood sucking undead and licking my own blood. But the point is, thereafter, I read that novel every five or six years. And every time I read it, I gained more and more powerful meaning. And finally, I realized 
after all these years, I had to utilize this novel because there's a major irony here. That novel is the source of almost all horror stories that were ever created thereafter. And yet, none of them dealt with the powerful truth of that novel in the Christian respect. It's so clear, it's so obvious that it can't be denied. And that's why you use so many passages from the novel in the book. For example, what the book makes very clear is that Professor Van Helsing came aboard with these people who were, who were fighting Dracula. They called him and he came over and he pulled all of them together. One of the persons was Quincy Morris, a Baptist from America, Lord Godalming, a member of the Church of England, and then Van Helsing himself, who was a Catholic. What the novel is saying, that in order to fight evil, you have to pull all of the Christian churches together and join in a common effort to fight evil. And that's exactly what he did. It gets further, more clearly said, when it got down to the point where they, where they were finding where Dracula was hiding, and they discovered that he had brought over big caskets. And in those caskets was earth from stale churchyards that he's able to rest in that. It's so obvious, the metaphor there. He's able to rest in the staleness that was creeping into the church. So that what ultimately happens then is that Van Helsing uh, has these people lift up when they found these boxes, lift off the lids. And what does Van Helsing do then? He places a sacred wafer in the casket. What is that saying? What we really have to do to fight evil is to put Christ back into the decaying churches. Nothing could be clearer. It's just astounding. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can see that it gave you a, a powerful framework with which to not exactly in, but interpret, but to complement your writing as you were going along. Of course, one of the themes that we'll come to in a little bit was the fact that it was a departing from the Word of God that actually facilitated Jones's rise and the dreadful things that he did couldn't have happened had that departing from the Word of God not taken place. So I do see how that framework works, that if indeed everybody is committed to the truth, it's so much harder for something like this to actually happen. Um, Could we start this exploration of your experience? Obviously, we could start with looking at the character of Jim Jones himself, but just because it's so incredible that a man like this could gain such a following in the trust of so many people and then lead them to their deaths. But I I think to focus too narrowly on the man himself to start with, you know, would be a mistake because you make it very clear in the book that, you know, what he did, he was very, very evil in what he did, but it didn't happen in, in a vacuum. There were other factors, as we've already just mentioned there, other even theological factors that contributed towards this taking place. Um, so I don't want to just concentrate on him. So I want to turn to your experience and see things through your eyes. So how did you first come to investigate Jim Jones? At the time, before even knowing about Jones, I was, I was in the field of applied science there at Chevron, just doing my thing and coasting along. And then the thing that really drew my attention and almost forced me into investigating him was that in uh, 1969, two close friends of mine came to me independent of one another, a couple of weeks apart. The first person was someone who was 
getting involved with Jim Jones and came to me and told me that he was virtually a saint. Then two weeks later, my other close friend, Larry Tupper, came to me and told me that his ex-wife is mixed up with some cult up north, and it turned out to be Jim Jones. At that point, I had no choice but to gather myself together and go two and a half hours up north and observe this Jim Jones cult. When I walked in, I sat in an aisle seat. Then when Jim Jones came to the pulpit, the very first thing he did was point to me and ask me to stand up. This is so bizarre. And so I did, and he asked me what I was doing there, and I said, well, I had heard about him, and I was curious, and I, so I just came up. What I realized after I got into my investigation is that Jones had people out in the foyer, and they would observe all people coming in. Mm -hmm. And I was dressed somewhat unlike the rest of the people there. I was dressed in a suit and a tie. And so they alerted him to this kind of new figure who was dressed differently. That's what caused him then to draw me out and ask me. So I, I told him that I was just curious and all that. And then when he got into the service, then he started his healing. Women would come forward who were ailing, and he would have them go to the bathroom with some of his nurse assistants, and they would seemingly extract a tumor. Then they would come back out and put the tumor on a plate and would parade it up the aisle. When the nurse came by me up the aisle, I stepped out of my seat and went over to look more closely at it. She then swept it away from me and rushed on up the aisle. After that, I went back and told my friends that this guy is just an absolute fraud. Right. But the interesting thing is, I had a key insight very soon afterward, because when I got back to the Bay Area, I talked with the ex-wife of Elmer Myrtle. It turns out that Elmer had three of his children up there in the cult. So she decided that she had to go up there and look into it. But her oldest daughter remained home. So when she left and went up there, when she arrived at the cult, it turns out that her daughter had a, had a boyfriend coming over. And when, when the boyfriend was there, the daughter got a phone call from a supposed Baptist survey in which they asked her all sorts of questions about what her uh, life was like and all. And she answered the questions. But her boyfriend, who was a nephew of a close friend of mine that I worked with, it turns out, he thought this was very strange. So uh, Rick, the boyfriend took the phone and then he just just had a heyday. He just filled the, the, the surveyors with all sorts of crazy things that he had gone through, amazing things, caught up in drugs and to which he wasn't. He was a real clean cut young fellow. So now to step forward, when the wife arrived at the cult, she was sitting there and that's when Jim Jones then asked her to stand up and then he started to divine certain things about her family, which, of course, obviously we realize the survey was all a fraud, too. And so when he told her all these strange things 
about uh, her daughter's boyfriend, she just was amazed. This made no sense to her whatsoever. So when she got back, she started to tell her daughter what happened. And so she said, Jones told me all about Rick and the things he'd been through and all that stuff. And then the daughter said, well, did he tell you this? Did he tell you that? And they, and they realized that the whole thing was coming out. And when they told me that, that was a key to me as to how Jones operated so powerfully. He would send his people to the various homes of people who had heard about him and who were curious, and they would go into the home and they would complain that that they uh, their, their car was out of gas and they need to make a phone call. Then they would ask to go to the bathroom. Then they would look in the medicine cabinet of the bathroom and take all this information back to Jones, including the various kinds of dolls that were on over the fireplace and all this. Uh, I don't need to go into much more detail than that. You get the idea. And so then when these people would end up uh, coming up for a visit, Jones knew who they were, and then he would divine this stuff about a certain doll they had and the problems they had because he had people uh, go through uh, garbage cans and look at uh, all stuff that was thrown out. It's just amazing the details his crew went into. He had an extravagantly powerful intelligence group that would gather all this information. So you can see then a fairly naive public along with a newspaper that he had put out, thousands of of issues of newspapers spread all over the Bay Area. So his name got known very quickly, along with the fact that people would talk about his amazing abilities. The stories went on and on. So he just blossomed with power and notoriety. It was just stunning. And he he became at some point a Disciples of Christ minister, didn't he? Yes. You you were a member of that denomination as well, weren't you? But obviously it wasn't the same church. Yeah, previously I I, I had left that denomination. But my two friends stayed in it. And so I began to piece all this together. And then I saw an outrageously powerful movement starting. But, But the strange thing is, whenever I went to talk to people about it, I couldn't bring proof other than all these charades that were going on, and the police were unable to do anything precisely because it's politically incorrect to attack a church. Just that simple. But also, people were speaking to you. You said you had these two friends who were telling you about things that were going on, and indeed they were talking about quite a lot of really unpleasant abuse that was going on in the People's Temple as well. Could you tell us something about that too? Yes. Uh, in fact, one of Emma Myrtle's daughters that was seen kissing another person. Jones then had her uh, stripped down to her underwear and thrown in the pool. And then later, he had her uh, beaten with a wooden paddle so much that, in fact, Elmer even said that her buttocks looked like raw hamburger. But even that is something that the the authorities were kind of reluctant to do anything about because it was punishment back then. If, if it had been today, they would have been able to nail him on that abuse. But back then, it was just kind of understandable and all. And he pulled it off because the disciples of Christ, any time people started to look into him, 
the higher authority of the disciples, the general minister of the of the region, would come out to his defense. And and that went on and on. And it turns out that later I even confronted the general minister of the region and I told him what was going on. In fact, the interim general minister was a was a woman and I even took her out to lunch and told her. But by that time Jones had captured her. When she went up to visit him, he had all his people ready to just praise and adore her and all she came back thinking she was the queen of the universe it was stunning so when i took her out she just said to me well i'm going to need a lot of people to come up with documentation well that isn't easy to do so in the meantime i went on talking with other people then about two years later maybe three years I was able to get in touch with a journalist, Lester Kinsolving, who was a minister and also a journalist. He started to look into Jones. And so when I heard about him, I got in touch with him, and I had an evening meeting with him in Berkeley, California. And I brought Larry Tupper, whose ex-wife was up there, who he was really concerned about. He was at that meeting, too. And I just unloaded all the information I had on Jones, on Lester Kinsolving. And he realized that it was all true. So he began to write a series of articles, eight of them. And four of them were published weekly in the San Francisco Examiner. When Jones heard about that, he brought hundreds of his cult members down, and they surrounded the office of the San Francisco Examiner and paraded, and Jones threatened big lawsuits. Well, the Examiner was the lesser of the two big papers in San Francisco, and it had no way that it was going to afford to go in and fight the lawsuit. So it pulled the last four of Lester Kinsolving's articles. Jones got away with it, coupled with the fact that the general minister was out there defending Jones and making it known that Jones was a member of the Disciples of Christ, the seventh largest Protestant denomination in America, by the way. Even President Johnson was a member of the Disciples of Christ. But no one at the time knew other than myself because back then I was kind of a liberal. I, I, it's just disgraceful. I was not a, a devoted Christian. I, I, I was, you know, related to all my intellectual friends in the, in the Bay Area. And I have to admit, it was a major failure of my own that I was not really solid in Jesus Christ. If I had been, I think things would have been different. I would not have gone that long without being able to do something with Christ on my side. I know I would have got through. But as it turns out, I went on and on contacting and not able to convince people. Finally, about seven and a half years into my investigation, I made contact with an American Indian close friend of mine that, that I worked with at Chevron because he was the only one I could find who would get in touch with the leader of the American Indian movement who was becoming very close to Jones. That's Dennis Banks. And so I figured I gotta do something to get Dennis Banks so as not to have the American Indian movement tainted with Jim Jones. 
So finally, my friend was able to get through to uh, D- Dennis Banks, and we set up a midnight meeting. And it turns out that uh, Dennis Banks had a, an American Indian leader friend teaching at a college there. Both of them were at that meeting. And Dennis Banks himself claimed, didn't he, that you were blackmailing him in some way? Yes, that's an absolute lie. Absolute lie. Nothing like that happened. But he did that in order to help his friend Jones. Turns out he was much closer to him than I realized. So Jones then knew about me. And that's when he sent out letters to some of the people that were that had broken out of the cult, including Elmer Myrtle, who was then broken out of the cult and was staying in, in Berkeley. So he, he sent letters to them. Yeah, but you said that this was the point at which Jones's paranoia really took off. Oh. And you, you say in the book that you had mentioned to Dennis Banks the federal agent Jim Hubert of the Treasury Department. That's right. Perhaps you'll, you'll tell us why in a moment. But, but the very fact that you had mentioned that person to Dennis Banks, that got back to Jim Jones, and that was, that was a real catalyst to release Jones's paranoia. Do you want to tell us about who Jim Hubert was and what that was all about? Yeah, I didn't mention uh, the uh, name of the reporter that I was also in touch with. But so Jones knew that I was in touch with a reporter. And this is another amazing coincidence. At that very time, it turns out that another reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle was doing an article on Jones. That was mentioned in previously a week before the article was to come out. When Jones saw that in the newspaper, he thought that that was the reporter that I was in touch with. He then, after hearing all the information I gave to Dennis Banks, thought that that's what I was going to give to this reporter. It turns out that the reporter I was in touch with was just a kind of a stringer for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. And so that mix-up in Jones's mind is what drove him completely frenetic. He thought you were in touch with this guy called Marshall Kilduff, is that right? Yeah. He was writing for the New West magazine, but you weren't. That was just coincidentally happening at the same kind of time. That's right. But because of that, I was then able to get in touch with Marshall Kilduff himself. And then we had a meeting with him. But it's that earlier meeting that Jones was mixed up on that just drove him into a frenzy. That's when he started gathering his cult members here in the Bay Area and preparing them to go to flee to Guyana. This is something the public still doesn't know about. They haven't a clue as to what really drove Jones out of this country. It was Jones's own mix-up on what was going on that caused him a fury of fear. And so that, right. that's what drove him out. And that was a year and a half before the Guyana mm. mass murder. Yeah, and you say in the book that, uh, you know, once this paranoia was kicked off by these various things that were happening, that he collapsed in a meeting, um, that he, was, he started sending all these threatening letters to you and your family. And then there's this, this amazing incident that you recount about a surveillance team that Jones had put under your ex-wife's house. Yes. <laughs> and they, they thought that they heard a very close friend of uh, Jim Jones called Michael Prokes actually inside the house. But they were completely mistaken about that. But uh, do you want to tell us about that? Because I thought it was remarkable. Yes, that was Larry Lipke. They evidently looked somewhat alike and had the same voice. 
So that, that sealed it for Jones. He thought that his friend, Michael Prokes, was, was betraying him. Yeah. And Michael Prokes, about a year and a half later, committed suicide in Modesto, California. It, it's just such a bizarre thing. It's like a Shakespearean comedy mix-up. It really was. And this was the time when you went into hiding, didn't you? You said you slept with a borrowed shotgun under your bed. That's right. Uh, Jones threatened to, to burn my house down to the ground. So I went into hiding in a little place in San Pablo and continued to go to work very careful, watching for being followed and all that. And so it went on for a year and a half. And then finally, it got so bad that congressmen were called in. That's when the whole thing came to a head. And when I heard that this congressman, Leo Ryan, was going down to uh, Georgetown, Guyana, I got very concerned. And then a day or so later, I heard that Ryan was going to go all the way out to the Jonestown outpost. That's when I called Nancy Dooley of the San Francisco Examiner, who I had been working with previously for a year or so. And I said, you know, we've got to do something to stop Ryan from going out there. I've been studying this man's mind for eight or nine years, almost nine years. And I know that he's got some plan of action. I don't know what it is, but I know he has some plan of action. So we've got to stop Ryan. She said, well, we've got people going down there with him who are giving him all the information. And I said, no, that's not going to work. Ryan is not going to come out of South America alive. I told my friends that, and of course, it all happened. And that's what just pushed me into some kind of depression. And, and it caused me to go into a kind of a retreat and cry out to God for two days for some kind of meaning. Where did I fail? And it turns out in some way, God got through to me and told me that I was just myself a kind of fraud. I didn't really, really believe in Jesus Christ in the way that good Christians should. It hit me. So I went to my liberal friends in the Disciples of Christ, who I still stayed in touch with. And I said, look, I've been all wrong, and I think you all are all wrong, too. The Bible means what it says and says what it means, and Jesus Christ is the only way. But they thought I had just kind of lost it. They were just so into that New Age stuff the, the disciples on the West Coast were, were the most corrupt of all. They started teaching all sorts of weird things about Jesus, that if he had just only had time to get things right, he would have collected himself. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got quite a few things that I want to ask you about that religious scene there, which you're just describing. But I think I'd like to just complete this story here about Leo Ryan and, of course, the suicide murder that took place thereafter. Now, I understand that Congressman Ryan was ambushed and killed down there by some thugs who uh, Jim Jones was was operating down there and uh, some journalists were killed uh, defecting 
temple member was killed nine others were wounded and you say that you know you were giving warnings about this but you say in the book that you were also warning about the very people's temple agricultural project or, or jonestown that jones was setting up down there in guyana you wrote to uh, the Prime Minister of Guyana, you wrote to Cyrus Vance, US Secretary of State then, warning about this. What kind of reactions were you getting when you were sending out these warnings? Were, were they all being ignored as well? Well, I always wondered. I know that that document has to be back in the Secretary of State's file somewhere, but they were so, I am sure that they were so embarrassed, they, they just weren't going to mention that letter. Fortunately, I kept a copy of it. And also, Forbes Burnham was also kind of Jones got to him, too, also, because he he claimed all this good stuff that he was going to do for uh, Guyana and all. And so that, that warning went virtually nowhere. So when, uh, to go back to Ryan, when Ryan got out to Jonestown, he was aware enough to ask some of the co-members, if you want to get out of here, let me know, and I'll take you back. And two or three or four of them said, yes, we want out. And when Jones found out about that, he then started preparing his assistants to do something. Because when they left Jonestown and went to the uh, Port Katuma Airport, about three or four miles from the Jonestown outpost, when they got there, two planes arrived to take them back. When they landed... That's when a truck full of Jones's henchmen arrived with uh, machine guns. And uh, then they started just blasting everybody. They shot up one of the planes and uh, Congressman Ryan was, was shot dead. And uh, his assistant was wounded badly. And the other plane, some people got in the other plane and it got off. And that's what alerted the people back. They they were able then to radio people and tell them what happened. And when that happened, of course, uh, that's when the American authorities just went absolutely bazooka on what to do. You know, it's interesting. That event was the biggest event in the 1970s decade. It penetrated all the way to the deeper outreaches, all the way to China. Everybody knew about that. But what went on then was all sorts of misleading stories and lies. And especially the amazing thing is the disciples of Christ began to fudge what was going on. They wouldn't admit to it. Was there no sense of responsibility for this at all expressed within the denomination? Well, ultimately, after maybe months after the mass murder, I was able to get in touch with a general minister back in Indiana. And I heard an amazing story from him. And so I had this interview in which it turns out that just two weeks after the Guyana mass murder, they had a meeting. And in that meeting, the whole mass murder was not even discussed. But they had a private meeting during that big gathering seven of the highest theologians in the Disciples of Christ were meeting. And this guy was one of them. He was a, a genuine person, an honest theologian with real love. And he decided to do something 
about his fellow ministers who were not even dealing with this horrible thing. And so he brought some stencils of his article that he wanted to do to deal with this honestly, in which he said, what we need to do is gather some of our very best theologians and bring this whole thing out and deal with it honestly. Well, the other six then took the stencil back that evening with them to their hotels, read it. The next morning, they came back, and he was handed all of them back and told to take them back to his office, burn them, don't even tell our own uh, press office about it, don't even mention it. And he just went on and on with me in the interview, just telling me how utterly let down he was by all these people. And so I realized that they were not going to deal with it because the lawyers told them not to deal with it. They were going to get them through this some way without dealing with it. And that's what happened. But this cover-up by the disciples of Christ to this very day has never been dealt with in the public media. Never. But who am I? I just a little guy. I'm not able. I was just not able to get it out. I put it, I put it out in, in some of my books. But, you know, only have several hundred of them sold. Well, this is a theme, really, isn't it, of your battle is very much a one-person battle all the way through this. And, and how difficult that is, you found, to try and persuade people. You didn't have documents. You had what was looked upon as hearsay. You, you didn't have actually written testimonies from people. So you were trying to convince people of the things that you were hearing, that obviously you had good reason to believe you were being told one-to-one -one about these things that were going on. But you, it was so difficult to persuade anybody else. And you were saying in the book that there are very various psychological factors and sociological factors that were impeding other people actually taking seriously what you were saying. And that seemed to go right on, even to this point that you're saying here now, that you're, you know, even trying to uh, get people within the Disciples of Christ to understand they have even some responsibility for what took place. You're just a lone voice in this even now. Yes. Only one journalist three years ago really put my whole story in a book. He's in Texas. It's called uh, Unsung Davids, and that's not my name. That's just to take off on David and Goliath. It's a story of 10 people who challenged evil in a very special way, in an amazing way that the public is unaware of. So I, I was chapter five in that, which is a very honest portrayal of everything I went through. And I got to know this journalist pretty well. But even that was not a, a huge seller. What that needed was to get in touch with some major uh, media person, but uh, that's not easy to do. As bizarre as this story is, the public is still unaware of it. Could I, for, for a moment, return to, there was something that I wanted to ask you and the opportunity just passed a little while back. We were talking about Leo Ryan, and I'd mentioned about the fact that there was the ambush and uh, a number of people were killed, including him, of course. And then I think you said that the media kicked off about that at that point. Is that right? Yes. So what I'm wondering is, you see, when I listen to the FBI tape, the very, very disturbing tape of the actual poisoning going on there at Jonestown, I, I will say to people, listen to that with, with caution. It's, it's there on the net. You can listen to it. It's very, very disturbing to listen to. But when that's going on, Jones is talking in very paranoid terms about the fact, you know, in his view that any moment now the, the camp could be raided by the CIA and all that sort of thing. 
And I'm wondering whether he'd actually created a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because by that murder of Leo Ryan and the other people happening shortly before, in a sense, he'd created this fear that they were going to be overrun. And at that point, his fear was, as it were, in a weird kind of distorted way justified. Otherwise, it wouldn't, wasn't going to happen. But because of, of what had happened, then there was the fear that they would have been overrun. Is, is that right, do you think? Yes, yes. I believe that Jones used that very story in order to convince the people that they're all going to be in trouble that now the authorities are going to come down after them. And so that is what he used to drive them to go ahead and take the, the uh, poison. Whereas in reality, they only wanted him. Yeah. But he convinced everybody that it was a conspiracy against the whole religious group. Right. It allowed him to convince them that the only way out was to commit suicide, which is what he wanted because he had been driving, he had been driven with this preoccupation of a suicide cult anyway he, they had had many rehearsals doing the same thing uh, you know with fake poison they went through the ritual yes. many times yes I, I found an affidavit by deborah Layton blakey i think her name is and let me just just read this because it's, it's very revealing of what you just said there quote during one white night we were informed that our situation had become hopeless and that the only course of action open to us was a mass suicide for the glory of socialism. We were told that we would be tortured by mercenaries if we were taken alive. Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we'd just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would be necessary for us to die by our own hands. So as you say, there were these mm. twisted drills that were going on before that. Yes. We interviewed uh, Debbie Blakey for our f first book that I co-authored, published by uh, Putnam's of New York. She was a major uh, source of information for us in that book. That was the definitive book on Jones, really. Mm -hmm. And that's indeed available on the net, so I shall put a link to that in the show notes. Now, I want to turn to something which we have talked about a little bit, but I would like to give you more of a chance to talk about it in a little bit more depth. The extreme theological liberalism there in the Disciples of Christ at the time and how that effectively sheltered Jones, allowed him to rise to a position of prominence. Could you explain how that extreme liberalism actually functioned to help Jones? Because it's, it's, you know, it's quite counterintuitive. I should think a lot of people would think you know Jones would have been very much a, a sort of uh, you know, a fundamentalist, uh, but actually, no, it's really quite a different situation altogether. Could you explain that? No, the opposite is true. Jones was able to function in both ways at various times, but in the main, he was an absolute radical Marxist. And this is what endeared him to the disciples of Christ, who themselves were very Marxist-oriented. I will never ask for a penny back from this church. You understand that? Get a form filled out. Of course, you can't anyway, because your father's always been careful in that way. These are free will offerings. You've been told exactly what I stand for. You can never say that there's been misrepresentation because I told you there was no God. I told you I was the only God there was. I told you there was nothing else but truth, and the only truth is socialism. And I told you so nobody can go out here and say they had any misrepresentation. 
That's the only way you can get money back is that the money has been taken under false pretenses. And honey, I sure can be accused of many things, but I never took money under false pretenses. In fact, the disciples were so bizarre that one major theologian at the Pacific School of Religion, whom they had asked to help them in some revitalization project that they had, when he saw what they were up to on the inside, which was very bizarre, by the way, the disciples of Christ, the high level, the ministers and pastors, would go to a special retreat where they engaged in dope smoking and wife swapping. It was so bizarre that this theologian said, I simply told them, I said, I want nothing more to do with you people. But this is still not known by the public. It's just simply not known. They were doing all these things and getting away with it because the media shied away from attacking a, a major denomination. And this was back in the 60s. So they were an example of what was beginning to go on all over the country, the sexual liberation movement. But your criticism is more of the leadership, isn't it, rather than the general congregation? Because you give the impression in the book that many of the general people in the congregation had a faith in God, but it was the leadership which tended to reject the gospel. Yes, that's true. Some of the old congregations, they were still real believers, and that's why they wanted to kick this one pastor out, because they saw him as a Marxist and anything but a true believer. So... It was the higher level. And it turns out that this theologian of Pacific School of Religion, he looked into things in the Disciples of Christ. He realized there were divorces rampant all over the place. And that's what it led to. That's the consequence of this ultra-liberal relativism and all that. They were deep into cultural relativism. There's one thing that was really revealing that you said. You know how sometimes when you read a book and a particular paragraph jumps out, and this one did for me, and that was where you say with the Disciples of Christ, uh, there was a very sort of lax membership requirement, and that is that you should profess faith in Jesus. But if you were to then go and ask, well, what do you mean by Jesus? That well, That's off limits. You know, All that matters is that you say you believe in Jesus. Uh, and so there's no necessarily any content to that. One person might actually mean belief in the real son of God, Jesus, and somebody else might mean Jesus as a, a poached egg or something. It, you know, So that situation meant that Jones had a doorway to jump in and say, I'll tell you what Jesus is. Oh, yeah. That's exactly because Jones was very aware of the radical element in the leadership of the disciples. And then when he came out to the West Coast and he realized how bizarre they were, he realized, I can attach myself to this congregation. And that's going to be my protection, right? And he was absolutely right. He became a member. His church was not just a cult, so to speak, but it was a member church of this major denomination. And that's what allowed him the umbrella of acceptability. He had this umbrella Mm. of acceptability. It's just that simple. Mm. Had there been a, a real adherence to the teachings of Jesus... This couldn't have happened because they would have, before he he entered into ministry, before he actually became ordained, presumably he was ordained, then he would have had to be very convincing that he believed certain doctrinal standards and he wouldn't have passed that, presumably. Yes, just that simple. Any church that really was 
following Jesus Christ, we would have had all the criteria, the frame of reference by which to see Jones for what he was. But uh, he was above it, and he, uh, he, he just got away with it. And it, it is so important, isn't it? Because it's so fashionable these days to talk down doctrine to such an extent that the word doctrine is almost like a dirty word, which is ridiculous because it just means teaching. But it, this shows, doesn't it, just how important solid teaching is to keep out. I mean, it's just an obvious evil here, isn't it? And yet that was not picked up. No, it, it wasn't. The public didn't get the real message of Jonestown which included the falling away of faith of the major denomination. They never, they never got the message of what this kind of thinking and this kind of weakened theology leads to. They never saw that message in Jim Jones and because the media steered clear of it. So the public was not able to see. I want to come back to another one of those paragraphs that jumped out at me while we're on this uh, subject of this extreme liberalism. Um, You say somewhere that this helps to explain why you weren't taken seriously for such a long time as well, because these clerics particularly were trained in this kind of approach to people where, I mean, I'm going to say straight away that actually I did a little bit of theological training myself and I encountered exactly the same thing. And this is where under pastoral skills, you're taught to look for the the hidden emotions and the the hidden motivations of people when they're speaking to you. There's some truth in that, of course, but it can be taken to such an extent that you don't really listen to the content of what the person is telling you. You're always listening to these motives underneath, uh, these things that are motivating the person. So therefore that undercuts every time what the person is saying. And you said something similar to that in, in the book, that when you were giving these warnings, you had that sense that they were hearing you, but not really listening to you because they were thinking things like, ah, yes, well, you know, David Conn, he doesn't understand the things that we do. He's not coming from the same place as we do. He's, there must be some ulterior motive that's causing him to say these things. Because I'd experienced something like that in my own training, in, in inverted commas, pastoral skills, I connected with what you said there. Yes, I believe that that's a very important issue. And it, it is, as you say, not readily known and thought about and considered, even in the theological circles. Yes. I remember way back with my uh, co-authors, the one co-author, this stringer for the Press Democrat, finally, I saw him just getting way off base and thinking, oh boy, we're the good guys going after the bad guy now. We were sitting in the living room, I remember vividly. I said, George, you've got to be careful here. When you think that you are going after this guy and you are focusing on getting him, I said, you have to be very careful when you're dealing with somebody this evil, because if you do get off base a little bit, that evil is going to reach out and grab you like a cobra. Now, the big irony here is that several years later, this stringer, my co-author, turned out to be charged with sexual abuse of his child. So I got mixed up in the very first case with the wrong person. And that's one of the reasons the book, I think, failed to do more than a couple of three printings. But it is a sense of people have to be careful of what they're doing. You know, one of the problems with sociologists and even major scientists is that they lack the ability to think deeply, honestly, and courageously. That lack of thinking 
is what allows them to get so far off base and get caught up with their own goals and agenda. And that's why they get off into where they can put down God and say that God doesn't exist, which allows them then, of course, to be the authorities. The high priests of society are the physicists. I I think, sorry, I was just going to say, I think it's a tragedy in a lot of education that people are not encouraged to think for themselves. They're rather encouraged to take on board what they're told and just to to regurgitate that. And I I found that at the theological college, whatever the tutors said, that's the way it is, you know. And and as soon as you started to say, well, I'm not sure I agree with that, then you were looked down upon. And that's a very unhealthy situation indeed. Yes. You know, if I may, this is, I believe, a big problem with a major segment of the scientific world today. They do not think deeply and courageously about things outside the box of science. For example, almost none of this segment of scientists who are into scientism has considered why they are compelled to deny absolute truths. I mean, that's so bizarre because I've interviewed several high-level people, and I've described the most heinous activities you could imagine. I won't go into detail on them, but then I say, now, can you tell me that that's absolutely wrong? And every one of them said no, because they're into this philosophy. A further, very frightening idea to many of them, a further thought is simply intolerable to them. If absolute truth does exist, it means that a supernatural authority is operative. Thus, it means that the supernatural affects the natural world. And they will simply not accept that. Any science would agree, you know, we human beings are part of the natural universe. Therefore, if one of these natural beings were to become a follower of that very source of truth, then that natural being would become a different kind of person, would become a new creation. And this is a key thing. Thus, the truth has undeniably caused a change in the natural order of the natural universe. That's what scientists ultimately are terrified of. They don't want to recognize that God, that the belief in God, affects the natural universe. The natural universe is, in their view, just simply the natural universe, and nothing affects it. That's so bizarre. Yes, and of course this is the subject of your other book, which you kindly sent to me, The Specific Density of Scientists here, where you're not talking about all scientists, you're talking about those who buy into this dubious philosophy of scientism. And we were discussing before the interview how this, strangely, this actually does connect to Jim Jones, because he was rather enamoured of this way of thinking, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Uh, Jones was really taken with, with the modern direction that social scientists were, were going, and he en- endeared himself to them, and he actually used them in much of his progress in his cultic activities. Science was uh, a way to, to uh, pave his way to uh, identifying with the authority, a higher authority, an intellectual authority. And it also then, it allowed Jim Jones, who is there in this vacuum then, to be the source of authority to people. That's why he claimed that he was like Jesus Christ. In fact, he would throw the Bible from the pulpit. He would just throw it to the ground. Said, this God 
you don't need to pay attention to. But that left it open for him to be their authority. And, of course, that's who they were focused on. And, and so he became this powerful authority in their eyes. What will you do? I've never lied to you. Your Bible is full of lies. Your sky god makes no sense. If he was all perfect, why don't he come down and do something? If he can heal everybody in a minute, why doesn't he heal them all? Why do he make all these different races to fight and to kill? Why does he bring some into the world born blind? I don't bring anyone in born blind. Anyone that's had a stroke under my ministry has been healed. And those of you that have come with your crippling diseases, your diseases, all of you have improved since you come to me. Though you were dead, now you live. I'm a savior, not the creator. Don't confuse me. I'm the savior. There are many saviors come up out of Zion. I am a savior come up out of Zion. Come up from the earth. Why do you listen to this last, as I say, yesterday? A white woman. That shows you how much murder there is in the hearts of people today. You say, we couldn't give up what we know. What we know has brought us to this place. People telling us to think about heaven, the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell. That's why we're so careless today. So godless, so heartless. That white woman on the Miami Tower. Her heart was broken, lonely, alone, afraid. She's up there wanting somebody to care. And hundreds of people, they said. White, every race, saying, jump, 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 you bitch, jump. They do it all over America. Read every news story. One in New York recently, we're trying to get them to jump off of the 37th floor. Jump. There's no heart. There's no love. Everybody killing everybody. So what have you got to lose? Does your churches have any love? Does your preacher talking about the sky God? Will he give you a ride? Will he give you any buses? Has he given you any of those homes? Has he given you help? Does he go into the court and the jails and set you free? Does his, does his sky Jesus do you any good? No! I'm the only one that'll help you! I'm the only one that cares about you! I'm the only one that loves you! Coupled with the fact, by the way, of the bizarre trickery that he was able to engage in. He was even better than the uh, Philippine psychic surgeons. I don't know if you remember those in that big time when everybody was going over. That's right, yes. They would hide some uh, liver or something in their hand and then they would press into the stomach and pretend that they were pulling the the organ out of, of the body, but in fact they were just revealing what was already in their hands and people were therefore feeling that they were being cured through this strange process. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I investigated that when I became adept at doing it myself. <laughs> and I realized how it was done, why it was done, and how easily it could be done. Mm-hmm. Then I looked deeper into it, and I thought, well, who's making the money off this? How is it surviving? And it turns out the real profiteers from that system were the people that were transporting all the people over there. It was the transportation industry taking all these people over there, and they were making the money. And, of course, that's why Jones himself got into it, wasn't it? Because uh, looking at the chronology in the book, I mean, he had this church that he was, uh, this is way back, way before the People's Temple. He had this other church that he was responsible for, and he was broke, basically, and he was selling monkeys, apparently, door to door. He wasn't making much yeah. money out of that. And then he hit on the idea of getting into the healing ministry, and I think this Father Divine person seemed to have a great impact upon him who was running a cult there in Philadelphia. So Jones was very uh, enamored of this Father Divine in the mid-50s. 
studies and then got this idea of, of getting into the healing ministry, essentially, it looks like anyway, just to make money. So, of course, if that was yeah. his motivation, then, you know, any trickery was, yeah, fine. Do whatever you like to make the money, I guess. He was no fool. He knew whom to study. He knew how to gather information. And he was, by the way, highly charismatic. That's another thing that allowed him such power that you could hardly run into a person that was more charismatic than Jim Jones. He just stunned people with his charisma. A great talker, a great speaker. And that's why he just was able to overwhelm even the more sensible people because they were struck by this this great charisma and his ability to sway people and, and get a lot of followers who just really fell for him. Sure, and he seemed to have this from really quite a young age, didn't he? Because when he was a teenager, 14, something like that, he was aspiring to be a religious leader even back then, and he was holding services for you know, other children's pets and things like this, and then he very soon, very young, entered into a correspondence course to enter the Methodist ministry, and then quite quickly got his first church appointment. So he obviously seemed to, well, impress people right, left, and center. Yeah, it was, it was his charisma. Because it would have never been accomplished if it hadn't been for this almost unprecedented kind of charismatic ability. He just swept his way right right up. He even convinced one of the leaders of the Disciples of Christ, and he may very well have, visited uh, Castro, talked with Castro. In fact, this high-level minister was taken with the idea that this man actually was so powerful that he was able to talk with Castro. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was something, again, very revealing. You had a quote from, now I don't know whether it's genuine, I'm assuming it is. It was a quote from a Guyana newspaper, and it was reporting on a transcript of an undated interview with Jones. And this was actually found, this transcript was found at Jonestown in 1978. Um, but it's the words of Jones himself and how he got his first religious appointment, his first church appointment. Now, if this is genuine, it's quite a window into the man, because it first of all tells us something about the fact that he must have impressed people, but it also tells us something about what he was thinking inside his mind. So I'm just going to quote from this. I won't use all the language that's there. Um, so this is quoting from Jones's, uh, the transcript here. I'm wandering down the street, stopped at a used car lot, and met a man. I found out he's a Methodist superintendent, and I think, oh, dot, dot, dot. He's a religious nut. I started knocking the church. He said, why don't you come to my office? I thought, F, blah, 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 blah. I'm not coming into your blah, 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 office. But I did, for some instinctive reason, I went in. He said, I want you to take a church. I said, you giving me a church? It's incredible, isn't it? So he'd obviously impressed this man, and yet inside his head, he's thinking all this foul language, and it doesn't sound like a question yeah. at all. Well, back then, even there were some, you know, liberals creeping into the Methodist church, so I'm not surprised. It boils down to this, almost simply this. The church got so far off target that to replace that value, it got into politics. That's what many of the major denominations now are off into. They're political elements. They're political entities. Not real devout Christians. They're just into politics because that serves their goal, which again goes way back to Marx's influence on the whole system way back in the early uh, early part of the 20th century. What I would like to end with is a couple of questions. One is that 
you know, what can we learn about the man Jones himself? Because, I mean, so much else of what you say in the book makes so much sense, but it's it's really difficult. I find it, even so, having read your book, still difficult to understand Jones himself. Perhaps he can't be understood, I don't know. Um, I can understand, you know, the conditions that led him to be as influential as he was, and for him to be accepted by so many people, to wielding the power he had... But the man himself, I, mean, I can I can use the, the category of psychopath, but somehow that still doesn't quite deal with it. So, I mean, having pondered the man for so long, how would you sum up Jim Jones? Well, first off, I would say he's a typical example of, of a young boy who grew up without any genuine role model. His father was a drunk and a person who was wounded by mustard gas in the uh, First World War. And his mother was a strong, loose-talking woman, but he never had a, a real role model. And so he was finally searching out and never really found anyone he could really respect. He, he respected no one but himself. And that was bizarre because he was really, in a way, a kind of multiple personality because at times... I think he felt genuine in saying some of the things he said, but then he realized that he was saying them just to get people on his side. But the more and more this fakery allowed him to gain, he, he saw that as an affirmation yes. that he was doing the right thing. Do you think he actually believed himself, even though he yeah. was engaged in this fakery? He believed his own propaganda. There is a word. It's called solipsism. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not too many people are. Well, you believe that you're God. Yeah, yeah. You, you believe that you are the only reason for being here. You are the only one that counts. It's an exaggerated form of narcissism, but it's deeply pathological view. And, and I believe that that plays into what he was. Everything that he did... Sure. affirmed, in his view, affirmed that he was doing the right thing because what did it do? It allowed him to survive. He being the only real thing that counts in the world, and I believe that he really saw that as true, that he's the only thing that counts in the world. And nobody else mattered. And in fact, the thought has just come to me that, again, listening to that very disturbing tape, he says during that dreadful ceremony that's going on there that he's so united with his people. I'm with you, I'm with you, he keeps saying. But what you've just said to me there about his solipsism means that really what psychologically was going on with him was, was that they were part of him. And so because his whole empire was coming to an end, everything had to go with him because he was the source of all reality. So all his followers had to go with him. That's how I'm making sense of it. That's right. I, I, I really believe that it's a kind of an antichrist in him where he was really saying, you know, I'm in me, you are in me, and the world is in us and in me. It's that kind of thing. He was so focused on that. It really was more fiercely a compulsion than we could imagine. Very rare, I think, very rare. In fact, coupling of the fact that he was that far off base, but had the charismatic quality that, by the way, is a dreadful combination. That's a combination to be feared. And so that's what we're dealing with in Jones, is a dreadful combination. Not only, in fact, sociologists say maybe one in 30 people are psychopathic. 
I don't know if that's true or not, but that's not it. He was psychopathic, but that rare combination of having an immensely unbelievable charismatic quality, that becomes the combination that should be completely dreadful to the world. Yes, and should have been filtered out by doctrine, indeed, by teaching of, uh, of the church, very clearly stated. Um, it seems that we're, very clearly we're dealing with mental illness here, of course. But, you know, the categories we've been talking in, I think if we refer to biblical categories, I think... I don't know whether you'd agree. I think we'd have to be talking in terms of demonization. Oh, without a doubt. I've, I've considered that way back. I believe that somehow he gave himself over to the demons. He just absolutely gave himself over. That's why in my search, in my study of Jones, I read several very powerful books. Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, and of course Dracula. And even some uh, productions, Hollywood productions, uh, dealing with the uh, undead and all that, some of them get to the point of dealing with, with this evil in a way that Jones becomes a representative of that. But uh, Jekyll and Hyde is a powerful book, uh, and uh, it helped me understand Jones. It's such a, a difficult road that you've had to travel, and in a way, psychologically, of course, you've had Jones with you all those years. It must be very difficult, I should think, to have to contemplate him constantly, really. I mean, it never goes away from you, I'm quite sure. Um, That's so true. I have to say, the only way I survived is because of coming back fully to Jesus Christ. It's just stunning. Jesus Christ is the only thing that allowed me to survive. That's a great testimony itself. Could you, perhaps, before we close, leave us with some main parting thought about all of this? Because obviously we've explored an awful lot during this interview, and there are many pieces of, of advice that have come out of it that you've, you've shared with us. But if there's one main thing that you think people should take from this as a, as a, as a warning, particularly, um, what, what would that be? I think, again, to learn and to commit to thinking deeply and courageously and honestly and to seek the only true frame of reference jesus christ and to ask for guidance and to admit your your need for christ and to admit your own sins and to plead with god for forgiveness and allow god then to step forward and become your authority and your guidance that is the most powerful thing that anyone can do. I can assure people that's the only way, because it's true. Jesus Christ, in one passage, I forgot which one it was, maybe Colossians, it talks about Christ being all. Here's the key thing. We need to go to no other authority, because Jesus Christ is all that we need to know about God. We cannot know all of God. If we were, we would have to be God. Therefore, God sent Jesus Christ, and the clear message is, this, my son, is all I need you to know about me. That is sufficient for you to bring glory to me. If you know and believe and follow my son, Jesus Christ, I am glorified, and you will be healthy. I don't know if I could put it any other way. Well, 
I think you expressed it very, very well indeed. And of course, you sent me that reference. It was indeed Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. Oh, thank you, yeah. I'm just going to read exactly what Paul wrote there, obviously in the English translation I have here. He, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, which encapsulates everything that you've just been saying there, that he should be indeed the center of our lives. And if we, we hold him as the center of our lives, then the kinds of things that we've been talking about here today need never have happened. They should never have happened. But it was because people were, were not holding on to Christ at the center that this evil was allowed to creep in, even into a mainstream denomination like the Disciples of Christ. And so I think what you've said here today is a, is a warning to us all, but not just a negative thing. It is, it is something for us to grasp hold of positively isn't it to say look yes if we hold on to christ and the truth that he brings us then we can be protected from things like this and and god willing this kind of thing will not happen again well i i just hope that somehow something god's going to do something because this you know the world can't go on this way it's getting so far off base that i just pray for some kind of regenerative event that's going to happen and bring people back for in him all the fullness of God was pleased as well. David Conn, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us today. You can be, I believe, reached at your website, which is truthsleuth.net. And it has been a tremendous experience talking to you, well worth the wait of all these months. And I'm so glad that you're well enough to speak to us today. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It has been a great privilege. Yeah. Could I leave you my email address? Or? Do you want to, yes, say your email address. That would be great. Yeah, yeah it's D-A-V... C O N one hundred thirty seven at AOL dot com. That's D A V the first letters of my first name and C O N the first three letters of my last name. Dav Khan one hundred thirty seven at AOL dot com. Thank you and God bless you and your ministry, Julian. It's been a pleasure to be aboard. Thank you ever so much, Dave, for coming on. It's been wonderful. I hope to speak to you again one day. You bet. Thank you very much.